All right, well, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Genesis. To the book of Genesis in chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. As we truly move now to the beginning of our verse-by-verse study of the final chapters of the book of Genesis, focusing on this man Joseph and his 11 brothers and their father Jacob. We're going to read just the first four verses this morning. Genesis 37, verses 1 through 4. And here's what we read. This is the Word of God. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. And these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers, He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Well, many of you are familiar with Jane Austen's novel, Pride and Prejudice. Uh, It's the story of Elizabeth Bennet and her journey to becoming the wife of Mr. Darcy. Uh, The title, Pride and Prejudice, both reflects the culture that is described in the book, uh, but in particular, the title describes the obstacles that Elizabeth and Darcy have to overcome to ultimately end up Together, uh, Mr. Darcy must put away his pride and Elizabeth must put away her prejudice. Only then can they embrace their love for one another. Well, pride and prejudice are two distinguishing marks of our fallen human race. That is, these two sinful qualities cross all ethnic and cultural boundaries. It does not matter where you go. If you find people there, pride and prejudice will be there as well. We may not want to admit it, but if we are honest, these things are still in us too. Jesus, our Savior, was different from every other human being who ever lived. He alone was not marked by by any tinge of pride or unjust prejudice. He humbled himself to take on human flesh and to die for sinners, sinners from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. He commanded his apostles to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. In fact, Jesus, alive and well at his Father's right hand, is at work today by the Spirit in removing, weakening pride and prejudice in the hearts of his people. And we should certainly pray that He would be continuing to do that in us. Well, I've entitled this message Pride and Prejudice because these two qualities particularly describe the household of Jacob. As we dive into these opening verses of our study, the first thing that is brought to our attention is just how dysfunctional this family really is. Now, in some ways, that's kind of encouraging to us. 
After all, if Joseph could come from a family that is this messed up and yet still become a mighty instrument that God uses for good, well, maybe there is hope for the rest of us as well. Uh, many of you might would describe yourself as having come from a dysfunctional family. And no doubt some of us feel like our own families today are quite dysfunctional from time to time. And so it is an encouraging reminder to just remember that God's grace is sufficient to overcome even these kinds of things and to accomplish His purposes among His people. Now, as we look at this household in Genesis 37, we see that Jacob is the head of the household. He is the father of 12 sons. And verse 1 tells us that Jacob and his family are dwelling in Canaan, the land of Abraham, the land of Isaac, where they dwelt as pilgrims. Isaac is still alive at this time, by the way. And it is important that Jacob has chosen to keep his family in Canaan. His brother did not. In Genesis 36, 8, we learned that Esau, Jacob's brother, took his family and they migrated out of the promised land to Seir, away from the land that had been promised to Abraham's descendants. And so Jacob's decision to stay a stranger in this promised land is an expression of his faith that God will fulfill his word and that one day the land they now dwell on will in fact be rightfully theirs. Well, in the beginning of verse 2, we read these words, and if you've been with us through our study of Genesis, they should ring a bell. Verse 2, we read, These are the generations of Jacob. Do you remember why that phrase, these are the generations of, is significant? You see, the book of Genesis is actually made up of an introduction and ten sections. And every one of the ten sections of Genesis begins with some variation on these words. These are the generations of. And the section that follows always has to do with the descendants of the person that is named. So, for example, back in Genesis eleven twenty-seven, we read, Now these are the generations of Terah. And immediately following, all the way through chapter 25, we learn about Terah's descendants, in particular, his son Abraham. And then Genesis 25, 19, we read, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And the next section is all about the children of Isaac, in particular, Jacob and Esau. And so now that we come to this section, we recognize that the focus is moving to the sons of Jacob, to the descendants of Jacob. This tenth and final section of the book of Genesis lasts all the way, in a sense, through the rest of the Old Testament, about the descendants of Jacob, Israel. From here on, in the Old Testament, the spotlight is on the nation of Israel, the twelve tribes, the descendants of Jacob. In fact, we do not see this phrase again. These are the generations of until Matthew chapter 1. And in Matthew chapter 1, we find the Greek equivalent to that phrase as we move from the descendants of Jacob to Jesus Christ and the New Testament, the New Covenant. In fact, it's interesting. This 10th section of the book of Genesis really goes from this Joseph all the way until we get to Joseph, the father, legal father of Jesus himself. 
And so the New Testament then becomes section 11 as the focus moves from the physical descendants of Jacob, Israel, to the spiritual descendants, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, made up of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation on the earth. So now in verses 2 through 4, we get to meet the family. Now, we've already spent some time with this family uh, back in previous chapters. But now we see Jacob's family as they are when Joseph is 17 years old. That's how old Joseph is now, 17 years old. And what do we see about this family? Well, the first thing that sticks out is this this prejudicial treatment of one of the sons, this, this favoritism towards Joseph. Joseph is the preferred son of Jacob. We're told Jacob loves Joseph more than his other sons. And so here's our outline for this morning and for this evening in these verses. Number one, the reason for Jacob's favoritism. Number two, the expression of Jacob's favoritism. And number three, the result of Jacob's favoritism. So that's where we're going. The reason for Jacob's favoritism, the expression of Jacob's favoritism, and then the result of Jacob's favoritism. And we're going to try and knock out the first two this morning. So number one, the reason for Jacob's favoritism. Why was Joseph the preferred son of his father? Well, the first answer that is often given is that Joseph was the firstborn of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. Remember, favoritism runs deep in this family. When Jacob was younger, he was the favorite son of his mother. His brother Esau was the favorite son of his father. And then, because he was duped in an arrangement made with his uncle Laban, Jacob ended up marrying Leah rather than Rachel, the woman he loved. And so over time, he, began to have, he, he came to have two wives, Leah and Rachel, and then ultimately four wives. And yet, Rachel was the one that he truly loved. Uh, Leah, his first wife, bore him his first son. Reuben was the oldest son. And it was only after ten sons had been born to Jacob that the wife he truly loved, Rachel, finally bore him a son, Joseph. And then Benjamin, and she died in childbirth while giving birth to Benjamin. And so usually it was the firstborn. Usually it was the firstborn son who was the preferred of the father, who would receive the chief inheritance and become head of the family after the father died. Reuben was the firstborn of this family, and certainly he anticipated that he would be the first in line. And yet Jacob's chief affection was for Joseph, his 11th son, the firstborn of the wife he truly loved. Now, you may remember that back in Genesis 33, Jacob and his family meet Esau. And there is this thick tension in the air. Uh, Jacob had treated Esau so wickedly when they were younger. And now, as they're about to meet again, Jacob doesn't know what Esau intends. Is Esau going to try and attack him and his family? And Jacob went out of his way before his family was going to meet Esau to separate the family into waves. Uh, His servant wives with their children were to meet Esau first. 
Then Leah and her children were to meet Esau second. And finally, Benjamin wasn't born yet, Rachel and Joseph were to come last of all. And this seems to reflect what we've been saying, that Jacob had a special love and protection that he showed to Rachel and therefore to Joseph, and the rest of the family did not receive this same love and protection from Jacob. Now, when we look more closely at our text, we see that Jacob's great love for Rachel, while that's the common reason given by most people for why he loved Joseph so much, it's not the reason the text actually gives. Look at, our, look at verse 3 again. Verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Why? Because he was the son of his old age. Okay, what does that mean? Why, why would the fact that Joseph was born later make him preferred above the other sons? Well, you may have noticed that as people get older, sometimes their relationship towards children begins to change. And sometimes men become a bit more grandfatherly towards children as they get older, even towards their own children, if their children are born later in life. And so some think that this simply refers to the mellowing effects of age, that these had impacted Jacob so that he now was almost like a grandfather to Joseph. He doted on Joseph. In a sense, he spoiled Joseph the way an older man would, the way a grandfather would. And now that Joseph and Benjamin are the only sons who are not yet fully grown, they're the two kind of still in the house. They get the benefits of Jacob's old age. That is one suggestion, and it may be true. What it doesn't explain is why Joseph was preferred even over Benjamin, uh, because Benjamin is there too now, and he is the younger son. And we're going to see later that Jacob does have a strong love for Benjamin, but Joseph is first in his heart. And so why is Joseph loved the most even over Benjamin? Well, I tend to agree with those who see that phrase, son of his old age, as something of a Hebrew idiom. You see, throughout the Old Testament, old age is attached to wisdom. Old age is connected to wisdom. And seen this way, the point isn't simply that Joseph was born later than the rest of his brothers. It's that Jacob had become a wiser father by this point. And that Joseph had received the benefits of this. Uh, Benjamin would receive that as well, but Benjamin is still young and the fruits of that have not yet been produced in his life. But at this time, Joseph appears to have truly benefited from the change in his father and his father's new wisdom. Joseph was not like the rest of his brothers. Uh, There was a special connection between Joseph and Jacob that the rest of the brothers did not share. And that connection was a connection of faith. There is no evidence at this point that any of Joseph's older brothers had truly come to trust in Jacob's God. In fact, there is plenty of evidence to the contrary. We see these ten sons that are older than Joseph being rebellious and living in sinful ways several times throughout these chapters. But as a young man, Joseph appears to be different. 
He has already taken his father's God as his own God. He has already begun to experience what it is as a 17-year-old young man to walk with God. Now let me be very clear, and we're going to talk about this more tonight. When parents begin to play favorites and start treating one child as better than the rest, trouble will always result I do not believe that Jacob was wise in the way he handled this situation. I don't believe he is set forth as a model for us to follow in these passages. But before we start to judge Jacob too harshly for his favoritism, we need to remember, one, that that was a besetting sin of the family he grew up in, that he had experienced favoritism for himself his entire life, And then second, when we set Joseph next to his other brothers, it's not hard to see why Jacob, a godly man, was tempted to prefer Joseph above the rest. Let's take a look at the evidence. The four eldest sons of this family were the sons of Leah. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. What do we know about these four eldest sons? Well, we know that in Genesis 35, the oldest one, Reuben, slept with one of his father's wives. We know that in Genesis 32, second and third sons, Simeon and Levi, filled with a spirit of revenge for their sister's rape, slaughtered all the men in the town of Shechem and kidnapped their wives and children and plundered them them of all their possessions. And then there's the fourth son, Judah. And in the very next chapter, we're going to see Judah sleeping with a prostitute and failing to keep his promises. So the picture presented of these first four sons of Jacob is a dismal picture. These are not the sons that any father would want representing him or the family. And what about the next four sons? Well, the next four sons were the sons of Jacob's concubine wives. Their names were Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And we're told in verse 2 that these are the sons that Joseph really grew up around. These are the ones that Joseph knew more about. And yet we find Joseph bringing a bad report concerning them to his father. That's in verse 2. There's there's no indication here that Joseph is being a tattletale. Rather, there's only the indication that these four brothers are up to no good. They're doing something they ought not to be doing. And Joseph has the sad duty of having to inform his father of what they are doing. Some believe that even though Joseph was younger, he has already been set by his father in a supervisory role over his older brothers in the fields. Others suggest that Joseph's conscience was just too tender, that he he could not allow his brothers to continue living the way they were living, doing the things that they were doing without his father knowing. He was conscientious about the way his brother's actions would affect them and affect the whole family. Either way, we see already in verse 2 a clear distinction between Joseph and these four brothers. Joseph is by no means perfect, but he seems to have a concern for righteousness, a concern for principles of good that his brothers do not share. Okay, well, what about those other two brothers? Besides Joseph and Benjamin, these are the later two sons of Leah, Issachar and Zebulun. And the truth is, 
we are told almost nothing about those two boys. In fact, they are typically just lumped in with the other brothers. The only evidence we have concerning the kind of men Issachar and Zebulun were is that they are lumped in with the others when they hated Joseph, threw him into a pit, attempted to kill him, and sold him into slavery, and then deceived their father about Joseph's fate. So you see the character of these, of these ten brothers, right? Benjamin's still young, but you see the kind of men these older brothers were. They were not godly. They were not righteous men. Rather, they were very wicked men. And then there's Joseph. And in the next couple of chapters, we're going to see that Joseph, even as just a 17-year-old young man, he is a, a godly man. He has a godly work ethic. We're going to see his concern for purity his concern for being faithful in the responsibilities that have been given to him. We're going to see gratitude in Joseph's life. We're going to see deep faith in God and even a kind of intimacy with God that is very rare. So Joseph was just radically different from the rest of his brothers. And so it's hard for us to be too harsh on Jacob, a man of faith, for having a special connection to Joseph that he didn't have with the rest of his boys. Again, this is not to excuse Jacob's favoritism, and certainly not for the way that Jacob seemed to rub the other brothers' noses in his favoritism of Joseph. But hopefully it does help us understand what was going on in this family. Now, at this point, I would like to say a word to our teenagers. Because here is Joseph, a 17-year-old young man, pasturing sheep, with his older brothers. He is already a man of responsibility. He is already a man his father trusts to be out there on the field with the family's property, managing the family's um, materials. Uh, Let this be a reminder to us, and we've said this before, that the way our modern world views teenagers is dead wrong. That is, the world views teenagers as if they cannot be godly, as if teenagers must be irresponsible, must be rude, must be self-absorbed. The world's view of teenagers is that they only care about themselves and their own small group of friends, that they live in the drama of their teenage world, that they can't see beyond anything higher to anything greater. And yet here we have in the pages of Scripture an example of a teenager who was setting an example of godliness even for his ten older brothers and his younger brother too. Uh, Remember 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. By the way, teenagers, especially note this. When we meet Joseph, he is not out there seeking to do something spectacular and change the world. That's not the Joseph we meet. The Joseph we meet is just seeking to be faithful where he is. God takes this young man who was faithful in small things and ultimately sets him over much. Ultimately, he becomes the second in command over the Egyptian empire. And teenagers, note this, I do want you to dream big. I I want you to think of ways that you can change the world for the glory of Jesus Christ. 
But the most important thing that you can be doing in your teenage years is focus on being faithful to what God has called you to do right here and right now. Right now, Christ calls you to love Him and to learn more about Him. He calls you to honor your parents and to obey them. He calls you to work hard in your studies. He calls you to love knowledge. He urges you to care for those around you, to point your friends to Christ and to Christ's truth. Christ calls you to care for others here at the church, to have relationships with older members and to learn from them. He calls you to set a positive example for the younger children in our church. These things may not sound radical. These things may not sound like they're going to change the world. But trust me, if you are faithful in doing the small things that God has called you to do, God will entrust greater things to you in his own time. And you'll be surprised how even the little things can have an impact greater than you would have originally anticipated. Supernatural, spiritual things that matter for eternity take place even when we are faithful in the small callings that God has placed on our lives. And by the way, let me say this too. We just don't know what kind of influence grandfatherly, godly, now blind Isaac might have had on his grandson Joseph. He is still alive. He is still in the area. It would be reasonable to assume that Joseph spent time with his grandfather in his last days, listening to the wisdom of his grandfather, listening to the things that Isaac could share with him. Isaac was a man of faith. Isaac was a man, particularly a man of prayer, as we've seen in previous passages. And so it is very possible, though it's speculation, that God might have used godly Isaac in a meaningful way in the life of Joseph. And I say that just to say to our grandparents, don't underestimate the power that a grandmother or grandfather's impact can have on your grandchildren. Seek to be godly influences and examples. All right, so we've seen the reason for Jacob's favoritism. Now let's look at just our second point, the expression of Jacob's favoritism. The expression. How was this special love for Joseph expressed? Well, it was expressed in the bestowal of this now very famous robe. Jacob gives to his son what we now know as the coat of many colors. Uh, This coat has become known somewhat even in popular culture. Even those who know little about the Bible will sometimes know about this coat of many colors. Um, It's kind of dated now. I don't know how many younger folks will remember this, but I imagine most of you in here who are older, you will remember that well-known Broadway musical called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And in the productions of that musical, uh, Joseph's coat looked like a rainbow with all of these different colors on it. Uh, The truth is, we're not really sure uh, what kind of robe this was. The Hebrew word used here is only used in one other place, 2 Samuel 13. And there, the exact same Hebrew phrase is found, but the translation is not coat of many colors, it's long robe with sleeves. And in fact, in that passage, it is the daughters of a king who are wearing these robes. And it is likely that the emphasis is not so much on color. Rather, the emphasis is on length. Long, flowing robes 
Robes that extended to the wrist, robes that extended to the ankles. These signified nobility, authority, even royalty. Right? Working people, they couldn't wear robes like this because these long robes would get in their way. So to wear a robe like this meant that you were not of the average crowd. You were above others. In other words, that seems to be the point here in Genesis. This was not the tunic of a working man that was being given to Joseph. This was not the tunic of the blue-collar worker. This was not the, the, the tunic of a common shepherd. Rather, what jo- Jacob seems to be saying in giving to Joseph this long robe is that he is now truly something more of a manager, of a supervisor, someone in authority over the others. This is not someone who's going to get his hands dirty himself. Rather, this coat is Jacob singling Joseph out as the one who is now in authority over even his older brothers. In fact, though Joseph was Jacob's 11th son, this coat was probably Jacob's expression of his decision that he is going to treat Joseph as his firstborn son. Reuben was the firstborn. The birthright was supposed to be Reuben's. And yet listen to what 1 Chronicles 5.1 tells us about Reuben. It says, He, Reuben, was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he, Reuben, could not be enrolled as the oldest son. And so we have explicit evidence in the Old Testament that Joseph and his descendants were treated as if Joseph had been the firstborn rather than Reuben. We even see this in the New Testament. In John 4, verse 5, we have Jesus and this uh, famous encounter with the woman at the well. But we read this, So he, Jesus, came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Friends, that field was the only piece of property that Jacob owned in the promised land. Most of the time, they were pilgrims on other people's land, but he, they had bought a field in order for them to bury their dead. To which son did Jacob give that field? Well, you would have thought it would have been Reuben. Instead, it was not the firstborn or the secondborn or the thirdborn or the fourthborn. All of the elders were passed over. And it was given to the eleventh son, to Joseph. And that seems to be what this robe was signaling. Let me just ask you, can you imagine how those older brothers must have felt? Can you imagine how embarrassing it must have been for them when others saw their much younger brother wearing this coat of authority, signifying his position over them, It is one thing to have to try and live with the knowledge that your father loves one of your siblings more than you. It's another thing when the father seems to be openly flaunting this favoritism to the world. And so we're going to talk tonight more about the consequences of Jacob's favoritism and draw out some implications for our own lives. Providentially, however, this entire episode is pointing to something deeper. Here is a father coming to one on whom he has set his love and covering him with a special robe. 
And I wonder whether or not that sounds familiar to you as a Christian. That is, does not the Bible say that He has clothed us who believe on Him with the righteousness of Christ? That here we are as sinners in a lost world, and yet God has selected us, set His special favor upon us, placed a sacred robe upon us, so that we are counted precious in His sight. And though we do not deserve it, God has chosen to exalt us. Today we are to be meek and lowly, but there is coming a day when God's people will be lifted up and honored before all. Fast forward with me from the days of Joseph to the days of Isaiah the prophet. and We have Isaiah prophesying to God's people giving them an example of of the kind of speech that will come from those who have been saved by God. And Isaiah says in Isaiah 61.10, speaking for those who know God's salvation, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Certainly, when God's people heard the prophet Isaiah speaking of the redeemed being covered by a robe of righteousness, by garments of salvation, they would have immediately thought of these stories from their history. Right? Adam and Eve naked and ashamed before God. And God sacrifices animals and clothes them in animal skins. And they would have thought of Joseph and how significant it was when his father, among all the brothers, took this robe and placed it upon him. Ten other brothers there, Joseph was chosen. And this is the pattern of Genesis. Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn. But God set his favor on Isaac. Esau was Isaac's firstborn. But God set his favor on Jacob. Now Reuben is the firstborn. But the place of honor goes to Joseph. Church, you and I live in a world of seven billion people. And in God's grace, we live in a time and place where you and I have heard the gospel. There are over one billion people in this world who have never heard the gospel. And yet even here, in our area, we know there are many who hear the gospel and it never takes root in their soul and they never truly repent and they never truly believe. And yet God, in His sovereign mercy, saw fit to open our eyes. God, in His sovereign grace, showed us our sin, broke our hearts, drew us to Christ as our only hope for salvation. God has given us faith to trust in Jesus, and the moment we first believed, (coughs) excuse me, in the moment we first believed, as we sang about a while ago, we were covered with the righteousness of Christ. We are now dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. 
This is sovereign grace. This is the special favor of God the Father. And to Him belongs all our gratitude and all our praise. And so I would close this way. Are there any here this morning who are not dressed in the righteousness of Christ? Are there any here who have not received this robe from the Father? This robe made with the blood of Jesus that covers all of our sins. This afternoon, go home, read Matthew 22. See what Jesus said would happen to the one who tried to enter heaven without this garment on. There is no hope without this garment. Before God, we are all by nature naked and exposed. All our sins are revealed before God. The wickedness of our hearts stands clearly before Him. Our pride, rank, and ugly shows itself as an offense to a holy God. Our own prejudice stands open before the Lord. But through the cross of Christ, everyone who humbles himself and submits to Christ will have their sins forgiven. Everyone who trusts Christ will have the wickedness of his or her heart covered and then gradually removed. Everyone who turns to the Lord Jesus and trusts in Him will be exalted to live with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the question for any unbelievers in this room is this. Will you humbly turn to Christ? Will you submit yourself to Him? Will you trust Him alone for your salvation? Not by your own good works, but rather will you come to God and say, God, I am naked. I have nothing to show before you. I am worthy of hell. But Father, I hear that there is this robe of righteousness made with the blood of Christ that you can put on me, that I can be counted right in your sight by trusting in Christ. And so I turn from my sins and I humble myself and I call Christ my Lord and I entrust myself to Him. Is that something that you're willing to do? And if not, why in the world would you not want to do that? Yes, it's costly. Yes, it means turning from your sin. Folks, this life is like that. The life to come is what matters. This robe is set before you. Would you not come to Christ in faith and be saved? Let's pray.